Welcome to the Trust Your Gut Podcast. I'm your host, Demi Fair. Here we dive into the world of the mind-body connection, exploring the gut-brain axis, microbiome, and nervous system while harnessing the power of intuition and connection to spirit. If you struggle with chronic digestive and mental stress and are tired of trying just one more diet or supplement to address your symptoms, then this is the place for you. Join me as we learn from the world of science and medicine, but also from nature, our own inner knowing, and personal stories. Thank you for tuning in, and now it's time to trust your gut. Hello and welcome back to the Trust Your Gut podcast. So today I'm going to be continuing on with the Travel Stories series. Last time we left off in Australia after I had just spent a year there, which turned out to be quite a challenging time for me and a really pivotal moment in my healing journey. It's when my um, gut issues just like amped up again, when my anxiety amped up tremendously, um, I struggled a lot with body image issues and disordered eating and over-exercising, a lot of food fears and anxiety at that time. But through all of that, I started to make some of the deeper connections that I now work with and teach others. And so I feel like it was really one of those big moments that shifted everything And now we are going to arrive in New Zealand where I spent the next year after that, which I feel like was such an important place to start to kind of integrate those things that came up for me in Australia. Now, before I get into the whole story of the year in New Zealand, I just want to make a couple quick announcements. So this is January 2024, and I am going to be running my masterclass called From Symptom Management to True Healing, Break Free from the IBS Stress Cycle. I'm going to be running that on January 16th. There'll be two different times. And so if you are interested in learning about my unique approach, it's a five-step approach where I walk you through how to truly heal your IBS instead of just managing your symptoms for the rest of your life with diet and supplement protocols, you're going to want to tune into this masterclass. So you can go and sign up for that. The link will be down in the show notes. And the masterclass also is coinciding with the doors opening for my group program, Gut Brain Healing Toolkit, which will also be opening on the 16th and bringing in a new cohort for the year. So if you want to get a, so if you are ready to find some freedom from your gut brain symptoms and the IBS stress cycle, be able to reduce or eliminate a lot of those gut symptoms that you experience or the anxiety or depression that accompany them, and work with your nervous system to just bring a lot more ease and safety and presence to your day-to-day life. This is the program for you, and you can find out all the information below, 
also in the show notes where you can go and hop on the wait list if you want to be the first to know when the doors are open and the first to snag a spot and get a special discount and bonus. All right, so those are my announcements for now. Let's get into the story of New Zealand. So I left Australia. It was July. It was the winter. I headed straight down to the South Island because, well, that's where all the mountains were and went to Christchurch where I spent a little bit of time couch surfing with two different people and figuring out my next steps. And from there, I hopped on a bus and traveled up to the north of the South Island, kind of near Nelson and Matueka, where I met, um, he is my aunt's husband's son. So, you know, technically some sort of relative, but him and his partner uh, were house-sitting, kind of a little bit out, I'd say, in the, the, the valley and the forest. And um, she was pregnant, and so I just went and stayed with them for a little bit, kind of figuring out my next moves. And this is where I was introduced to a lot of the fruits of New Zealand um, and just kind of getting a grasp on you know the New Zealand landscape around me. There was these sheep paddocks that I could walk through in the back and then go up this trail to the top of this little hill. And, you know, it was winter so it was dark and cold and I just don't even really remember what I did there but I was just there trying to find a van and trying to figure out a place that I might go and start woofing and just you know typically my way of traveling has always been buy the one-way ticket do a little bit of research just to kind of like set me up for the first couple days like you know find a place to stay for those first days I'm somewhere and maybe what I want to do but then I'm just kind of figuring it out as I go but I knew I wanted to head down to like the Wanaka Queenstown area because it's really like the adventure capital of outdoor sports right in the mountains so I spent some time there and honestly I don't really remember how everything happened if I ended up bussing down there or at this point I think what happened is a friend from home was like hey I want to come down to New Zealand let's meet up and I was like great sure I haven't seen anybody from home in over a year since he was flying into Auckland I was like hey there's a van up there that I would really like to get can you look at it for me and let me know if you think it's good so he took a look at it he gave it the a-okay so I bought it and without even seeing it a Toyota Hyus diesel such a great van the van was named BD I named her BD and he ended up driving it down from Auckland to come meet me there and then I guess that is what happened we traveled from there back down south to the Wanaka Queenstown area and so at this point I had found a woofing opportunity that's worldwide workers on organic farms where you can go and you can stay on someone's like farm or maybe just their house and property and you help them typically with like the farm work or gardening or whatever it is that they're posting for and in exchange for whatever level of work you agree on you get a place to stay and often are fed mostly you know the three meals a day so we first found this place to woof and it was quite incredible. Uh, this couple was a Canadian American couple who were very well off and they decided that, you know, climate change is happening, global warming's happening. Where is the best place in the world that we can move and create our own little like sustainable ecosystem that we can pass down to our children where they're going to be least impacted by global warming? 
obviously, uh, not a lot of people have that luxury. And after a bunch of their research, I guess they landed on Wanaka, New Zealand. So they had built this house. It had geothermal healing and solar. They were um, growing like everything that they could have needed and making their own like sparkling cider from all the fruit that they grew on the property. They were growing snails for sustainable protein. They had chickens, just everything. And they made the most incredible meals. Very, very like local, organic, super healthy, amazing meals. But again, it was winter. There wasn't that much to do on the property and they were lovely people. But I just remember feeling like there was just kind of this like kind of anal energy. Like the woman, for example, we were, you know, we were kind of always expected to eat, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the same time every day. And that's fine because all we're really doing is like working. But then, you know, you want to go out and explore the town a little bit and the surrounding areas. And, you know, that was fine. But I just remember like when we'd set the table and clean up, she was so particular about where everything needed to be. And I could feel her anxiety, right? And, you know, as a highly sensitive person, like, who's also anxious, you can really pick up other people's energy. And it just kind of made me anxious. And I remember this one time we had set the table, we ate our meal, and there was forks that had been on the table that weren't used for the meal at all. So I was picking them up. And like, maybe it was one of the first times or something, I didn't really know where they went. So I was like, oh, where do these forks go? And she was like, oh, I was like, they, they, they weren't used. And she's like, oh, well, I figure by the time they've already been out to the table and back, they're contaminated, so let's just wash them. And again, no judgment. I just remember being like, okay, like this is, you know, it was just not necessarily my scene. So we just planned to do a week there. And then I had been looking for another place to go woof. And at the same time, I was also looking to get a job in this area. Um, especially with the upcoming ski season, I thought, oh, maybe I can get a job up on the mountain. So I found this second place to woof, but it was out of town a little bit, like 40 minutes. And so my friend and I, we drive out there, you know, we've been in contact with the couple that lives out there. Just the man is there, um, this evening. It's like, oh yeah, we're expecting you. Like, just, you know, come on in when you're there. We arrive and it's this beautiful property. Like it like olive orchards and there's a river down below and big fields with cows and just like beautiful space and we arrive and the front door is just wide open so I just walk on in and we're kind of like hello and nobody's there I'm like oh this is really weird like I just I just said we were coming like no one's here the door was just wide open like huh so I'm like okay like kind of walk outside and shortly after I just hear this like of a quad of a four-wheeler coming up and on it is Graham and he's wearing these short shorts and these high gum boots and he's got the chocolate lab Ted on the back and he just pulls up and in his like deep southern South Island New Zealand accent he just says howdy campers and I was like all right this is a vibe and I remember we had dinner that night and again, like, again, just like such delicious, delicious food. Um, the food quality in New Zealand is far superior to that in the U.S. Um, and, you know, they were very into also just really like organic, healthy, local food. And, you know, we went to clean up and, you know, before, you know, 
Graham put his plate away in the dishwasher, he puts it down on the floor for the dog to lick. And I was like, oh, this is much more my style. And it ended up definitely being that way because I ended up staying here uh, with Graham and Giselle for a little bit longer than a week. And they ended up becoming my Kiwi parents and like the most important connection I made in my time in New Zealand. So I stayed there a little bit longer, um, had a really like horrible experience with cows one morning where Graham was just like, hey, do you want to help with the cows in the morning? And I was just like, uh, okay. You know, we had to get up like really early, like right at like sunrise. And I didn't really know like what we were doing, but the cows were being put on a different truck, on a truck to go to a different location. And so we had to go out and kind of help wrangle them, which was terrifying. I haven't spent a lot of time around cows. Like I did grow up with a couple cows in our field, but like I've never really been around cows and they're just scared and trying to get away from you and so they're like running and big but like you know they're not going to hurt you but it's intimidating and you're like "Ah," trying to like corral them and like the dogs are there and then like the quads and you're just like oh and then you finally like get them into the pin but now they're in the pin and they're kind of like shitting and pissing everywhere but they're running around so it's like splashing up on you and you're just like oh my god and you're wearing your nice arcteryx rain jacket because you don't have anything else and you didn't know what you were getting into Oh my goodness. So um, after that, I was like, yeah, I'm not working with like farm animals. (laughs) And I did a lot of gardening for them. Um, But from there, they um, ended up connecting me with the job that I would then work in New Zealand. So I got a barista job up at the mountain, but then this came through because uh, Graham was the person who looked over all the caregivers for a family friend of theirs named George, who was a 25-year-old male who got in a car accident, I believe when he was 17, and had a traumatic brain injury. And so they, he had to have a caregiver living with him at all times, and that was organized by Healthcare New Zealand. And, you know, Graham and Giselle were uh, nutrition coaches. They were very into nutrition and wanting to make sure George had really good nutrition in his life um, and just like a really healthy lifestyle and was getting movement and we're really just trying to make um, life better for him. And he was away from his family who lived up in Auckland because while he was up there, his life just wasn't doing very well. You know, he'd just play video games all day and eat junk food. And so they were trying to get him better and they wanted to hire me as a caregiver for him. And I was 26 at this time, so I was one year older than him. But I knew a lot about nutrition um, and healthy lifestyle, so they thought I'd be a really good person. And of course, I've had a lot of experience like with working with kids and youth and doing a lot of educational mentorship roles. So I worked with George, and I ended up working with him for four months. So this was kind of this beginning time over the winter, which was great because living in a van in the winter is not fun. It's how I ended up watching Game of Thrones because it was winter, it got dark and cold early, and then you crawl into bed and you're like, you know, I didn't have a heater in this van. It wasn't a pop top or anything. There was no standing room. Um, it was a great van. It was already built out. The kitchen was like in the back, so you opened the back door and you stood under that. But, um, you know, it was winter, so this was a great setup. I would work Friday through Sunday, 
so just three days, but I would live at his house. There was an upstairs room and bathroom that was all for the caretaker, all for the caregiver. And then, you know, my role is to make sure he got fed, you know, cooking meals and takes his meds and goes, you know, to work and goes to his activities at the gym and, um, you know, the social club and all of that stuff. And so it gave me an opportunity to have a warm place to sleep where I could shower and do laundry and cook food and just kind of clean up the van. And then in my four days off, I'd go off in the van somewhere. So it was a really great setup, but I'll tell you that job was not easy. It actually caused me to feel quite stressed and quite drained because caring for someone with a brain injury is not easy. George is such a sweet, sweet human. And because his brain injury happened when he was 17, his brain was still at the developmental age of 17, although he was a 25-year-old. And so given that and given of what happened during his brain injury, he didn't really understand a lot of social interactions and cues. So it was a lot of him talking at you and um, he loved to tell jokes. So it was kind of, he would just tell joke after joke after joke and a lot of just like, telling you things and it was a really draining experience um also just like you know having to kind of manage his life a little bit and you know make sure he was doing everything he was supposed to do and not like sneaking junk food or whatever and if he kind of like lied about something or you know did something that he wasn't supposed to do like having to kind of call him out and have a conversation about that and I think it was a really extremely valuable experience and I created a really lovely relationship with George he's such a special human um and it was a a role that I'd never been in before and it you know it was quite challenging. So by the time, you know, the four months, we're coming to the end of four months, I was feeling pretty drained. And, you know, I came from Australia really dealing with a lot of my anxiety that had, you know, become really apparent that was high and dealing with, you know, a lot of my gut issues still and just still in this kind of pattern of go, 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 do, do, do. And working out too much and I started to go to a naturopath there in town and it's so funny I can look back at the things that I think we had one session but I pretty much I I still have the little recommendation sheet and she was pretty much like you need to slow down (laughs) to slow down zone out a little bit like you know your psoriasis and your hormone issues since I had lost my period during that time I was in um, Australia and I think things are still a little wacky you know and your gut issues like all of that you know if you're in fight or flight all the time like it's gonna be really hard for those things to get better and then you know she tried to support me too with supplementation and diet stuff but again it was kind of this ongoing theme right I heard that when I was in India and you know kind of discovered that for myself a lot in Australia and here again in New Zealand someone was telling me this and of course I was going to this like boot camp class where I was just like high intensity exercise and then like going running and then going climbing a lot and whatnot and so it was kind of this first time I feel like I really was like okay I actually need to slow down like 
I need to nurture my body more and not go so hard. Now, did I fully listen to that? Not quite, but I think it was the time I was really like, okay, my gut issues are probably not going to get better if I keep driving this flight pattern. So, um, yeah, I finished up the four months of work and had been doing some trips in the vans, just trying to go see different parts of the South Island. My partner from Australia came down for a little while and was staying with George and I, and then in the van, it was kind of a lot. And that all wrapped up just before Christmas. And then I flew home for a month and a half to go home for the first time in a year and a half. And so once I returned from that trip, it was summer and I had fit, I had saved enough money working with George that I didn't need to work for the rest of my time in New Zealand. So at this point, I returned. It was summer. I drove the van up to um, the northern part of the South Island again to go to this festival, um, which I believe is called Imagine. And I had just this amazing time up there at the festival. Now, with my van, you know, she had a lot of kilometers on her. And there was one other trip I was coming from Wanaka to go and visit because my aunt and her husband flew over to visit um, my aunt's husband's son. (laughs) I guess he's my cousin, right? And so I went up to to see them. And I remember on the way out, my van broke down. It was the first time we had to get towed and I got towed back to the shop, but I met this lovely Irish guy who was a photographer. He took me to meet some baby lambs. He had a place I could stay for the night. You know, the serendipitous little moments that happen. He was actually like, like very big on Instagram for taking photos with quokkas from Australia and other animals. So that was pretty cool. I was back on the road no more problems with the van until this festival when my van decided to not start. But now I had driven up this crazy windy mountain road and then down into this valley where the festival was held. And so I, and there was no cell service. So I ended up getting a tow truck to come and bring me out of there. They were able to tow the van out with a strap. I didn't watch. They gave me a car that I could take back to the town while I waited for the van to be fixed. From there, I began my delightful time of just rock climbing my face off. (laughs) So this was definitely probably the height of my rock climbing career. There's a really fun camp and climbing area. It's called Payne's Ford and the camp is called Hangdog Camp up in that area. So I went there. I made some great friends with a French gal and some Swiss guys and all these other people at camp and just climbed every day. And it was so much fun. And then from there, it was kind of like travel around and see some other places, go to Arthur's Pass, go to all the boulders, make my way back down to Wanaka. I did a little bit of house sitting for my Kiwi parents, a little bit of garden work while I was there. And then the Swiss guys I had met were coming down and they were like, hey, do you want to go climb Mount Aspiring? So 
we packed up, we headed out the Matuki Tuki Valley, one of the most beautiful valleys in the world, and up this crazy, steep, steep, steep hike called French Ridge until we reached the hut for the night. Now, we were a little bit late in the season, so once we got up to the hut, we could actually see our route on the glacier, and we are like, we can't go up that glacier. There are too big of seracs, and the crevasses are too open. Like, it's impassable. And everybody that was there and writing in the book, they were like, yeah, no, like, it is out. The route is out for the season. Now, I really, really trusted these two Swiss guys because they were, you know, in the Swiss army as alpinists. They were super, super experienced. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have done this. But they were like, well, let's find this alternative route. We're going to go across this way instead of up over the glacier. And, you know, this way we're going to go on some snow fields. We're going to have to go over some rock slabs, maybe a little bit of glacier. But then we'll be able to reach this coal and that'll get us back on the route and up towards Mount Aspiring. So we set off early, early, early in the morning in the dark and made our way across and it was so scary. There was just like times where we're in our crampons on snow and that was fine, but now we have to transition to walking over these rock slabs, but like don't really wanna take our crampons on and off, on and off, but these rock slabs are really scary to walk over in the crampons, oh my goodness. Like, and as we're making our way, we hear this big ice fall above us and we can't see it, but you know, we could feel it and we could hear it and we don't know how close it was to us, but it terrified me. At that point, it was like one of the scariest things I had experienced in the mountains. And I was like, okay, this is serious, but we made it up. Once we hit the glacier, it was like the happiest. I've never felt so happy to be on a glacier because <laughs> glaciers can be scary. We hit the glacier and we started making our way up. And then we get up to the ridge and this ridge is so beautiful. It's really easy. It's not like, you know, a technical climbing ridge, but it's so exposed. Like if you had one bad slip, you'd fall off to your death. Like it's steep and exposed. Now for them, it that exposure was fine. Like they were, they could have probably run up and down it in half the time it took us. But for me, that exposure, mm-mm. I did not like it. Maybe I'd feel different at this point, but probably not. I've never really liked exposure like that. So they were so, so kind to like short rope me and have me on a rope as we made our way up this ridge, but you know, got to the top and it was such a beautiful day. No one else was up there. And you know, that was a big moment to, to climb this peak there. It was a very, very long day. We made our way back down to a different hut where we just slept outside of it and bivvied because it was full. And then we had a long, long, long journey back to the car where we had to go down these kind of slabs that were kind of wet. And one of the guys fell and started sliding for a while, but he stopped and it was just like, ooh, kind of a gripped experience. But we finally made it to the valley and then had you know, sometimes after those long adventures, when you just have that long walk out that's flat, it can feel like the longest part of the day. And it was one of those, like your feet hurt so bad, like your legs hurt so bad, and you just got to keep walking out this valley until we finally made it. And from there, I ended up climbing with them a little bit more. We did some really great um, multi-pitch climbs in the Darrens by Milford Sound. We climbed this one peak 
um, there that I, I don't remember the name, but, um, you know, that was a full day of climbing, rock climbing to get to the top and rappelling down. We did some other climbing in different areas around Queenstown, and it was just so much fun to be with these two really competent climbers and, and go explore with them. And um, I also did a lot of backpacking, just like a couple treks by myself and doing some overnight hut trips and just really indulged in and explored the New Zealand Alps and met other people. This was a time I met a lot of people on Facebook to meet up and climb with and do some traverses or go rock climbing. And, you know, this area, the Wanaka, Queenstown area, the Otago region is just such a playground for so many of these things. And I really improved my strength and skill as a climber. And that was, um, yeah, a really really fun time. So I'm talking a lot about just the logistics right now before I get into a little bit more of some of the other stuff. But I can take a moment right now to kind of reflect on, you know, what I was writing about in my journals at this time, because it's, again, just more unfolding of um, my process and my healing. And it's really interesting to look back at that now and be like, oh, wow, I have actually come a far way. So I definitely was writing about feeling like just really stressed out and you know the job I was working was stressful and then when my you know partner at the time came I just it was it was hard to be sharing like this small van space and then this like small space in this house where I'm like watching and taking care of this you know 25 year old with a brain injury so I write about you know just feeling like snappy and short-tempered and just wanting to control everything wanting everything to be in control like particularly how things were in the van or what you know we were doing and all of that stuff and I'm seeing that now is like that's part of that kind of anxiety and OCD aspect of my brain that just like feels safe when I'm in control and everything is in control and I was just starting to notice that and notice how you know I was having this aversion to being present like when I woke up in the morning I just wanted to like jump into things you know get on my laptop phone check emails look things up like get into business like take care of stuff and not really take this time to meditate or journal and it's true for me that I've learned I work best in the morning like my brain is just kind of the sharpest but luckily now I love to just take my time and these days my morning practice has been like over 30 minutes it's kind of crazy but to slowly move into my day without looking at my phone without looking at my emails without looking at anything and give myself that time before I'm able to jump into stuff and I know this is something that I've been working on since then so it's really cool to see how that's really established itself within my system Um, I was writing about constantly checking my to-do list throughout the day, thinking about what I'm doing that day, thinking ahead, like continually planning and continuing to live a few steps ahead of myself. This is something I've struggled with a lot. Like I used to get this experience where I'd wake up in the morning sometimes and I'd be hit with anxiety because I'd be like, what am I doing today? And if it was like sunny outside and I didn't have a plan to go do something outside or I didn't like really know what I was doing that day. Sometimes I'd be hit with anxiety right away. It was like I needed to, I couldn't necessarily just be in the present moment. My mind was thinking ahead, being like, what is it that I need to do? And even when I like started to get, you know, into whatever I was doing that day, 
my mind would always like kind of constantly be thinking ahead. Well, am I, am I going to go to yoga later? Am I going to go do this? Am I going to go outside for a bike ride? Blah, 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 blah. And again, right now as I'm sitting that, I'm like, oh, I don't experience that as intensely anymore. I don't experience that as much. Wow. Look at the progress I've made. And that's something that I may have not realized if I didn't have this journal to go back to. So here's just a reminder. If you have old journals, go back and read them because you'll be surprised at how much progress you have made. But part of this came from this drive of like feeling like I needed to accomplish things off of my to-do list to have a successful day, or I needed to go out and have a great adventure outside or a really good workout with like getting things done. And that made me feel accomplished and therefore I felt successful. I really didn't know how to do nothing and just be. I'm still working on that, but I'm a lot better with that now. So that was coming up and I was working with that, trying to see how I could find more ways to be present and not be so anxious. And so here's something I'm writing about, right? As I'm trying to do more of a morning routine and really establish one for myself. I was trying to do morning pages for a while. And then I did two meditations and some sun salutations had some tea and did some writing and I'm talking about feeling some frustration, anger, fighting and anxiety, vicious mind cycles, right? Those things were coming up for me the night before and how badly I wanted to feel grateful and present and relaxed and wondering where is this coming from? And I started to write about uncovering more and more of this anxious mind that plagues me. And I was feeling grateful for the frustration that was helping me understand there's something trying to get out. I talked about how I wanted to take the edge off and distract myself the night before. I even wanted to have a drink, but instead I went into it. And I realized that I was feeling overwhelmed and depleted by all the things I thought I had to do and not getting enough nourishing me time. So I was able to just kind of catch myself in that like, oh, you got to get this, this, and this done and actually be like, what do I really need to get done? What can I prioritize and try to give myself some more spatial spaciousness mentally? Take things off my list that weren't urgent, that weren't necessary. And this has been an ongoing process for me. And you might relate to this if you're someone who's also been in a bit of a flight pattern for a lot of your life and you experience that anxiety, that do-do-do, go-go-go, perfectionism, need to always be like on, um, maybe even OCD, et cetera, et cetera. This can be a really common thing and it's extremely hard to slow down. It feels extremely uncomfortable. It feels unsafe to our system and we don't feel in control. So I just want to normalize that and how much I have had to deal with that throughout a lot of my life. And this, you know, has been an ongoing journey and I feel like I'm finally in more of a place where I'm not so overwhelmed by that. I write about being so exhausted from being in my mind, how I want to be released from the stress, anxiety, the overthinking monkey mind, the body image obsession. I start to talk about struggling from FOMO, 
right? At this point, I wasn't rock climbing much in that first six months I was there. And I started to feel FOMO about not doing that and how I needed to get, you know, awesome adventures in before I went home for the holidays and just feeling like I wasn't doing enough epic things. I feel like social media was really amplifying this too because, you know, now at this point, you know, I'd only had social media for like three years and starting to feel like if I'm not climbing or mountaineering or getting these epic adventures in, like I'm not doing enough and... While there's genuine interest in those things, I could see where it go into this level of like, it's not enough and I'm missing out. And if I'm not doing these things, like maybe my ego's not proven or I'm not proving my identity or myself or something like that. So that is also something that has kind of been, luckily I've moved past a lot of that too. Just growing up is so helpful. Just aging is helpful, right? But with my OCD and just this this mind, oh, I feel a lot of compassion for this this 25-year-old here at this point and what she was going through with her mind. Um, but a lot of the OCD has always been kind of driven by FOMO and indecision. So just kind of noticing that and how all this made me feel really empty, right? Like... I couldn't trust that I'm, you know, exactly where I need to be in what I'm doing at this moment or that I'm given exactly what I need right now. And I just felt empty, like I wasn't living the way I wanted to, going through empty emotions without full engagement. I've been go, go, go for a while. And I think the emptiness came from just that go, 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 that constant push. And luckily, you know, leaving and coming back and being able to just be in the van. Honestly, just being able to be in the van and spend a lot of time in nature and climb and meet people, I think brought a lot of fulfillment because I was just able to just be more present. But a weird thing that happened to me around this time is I started to have this experience where I felt like I was suddenly really stoned, but I hadn't partaked partook in any you know cannabis consumption I would just get really like I felt like I was really high my mouth would get really dry my eyes would feel really dry and I didn't know what that was but I started to have a lot of this at the end of my time working with George before I was going home and this is something that I then experienced a little bit more in my life after um later on and I've come to consider it as probably some sort of anxiety attack Uh, a very very strange one but this is the first time I started to have these experiences so really was struggling with the anxiety and what at that point I didn't understand was OCD either and you know I think for people who tend to be perfectionists tend to have you know more of that flight pattern within them it can be really hard to just kind of find that line between just being really grateful for what you have right now and being present and also like having goals and striving for more so this was something that I was also really sitting with like can I just like be in the present and be like grateful and find meaning and joy in what I have right now instead of feeling like I'm not where I want to be or I don't have this or you know, just pushing myself to strive for more and trusting that 
right now is where I'm supposed to be. And that is, that's a long journey too, right? So, you know, you can start to see how kind of things that came up in Australia and now I'm in New Zealand and they're, they're even like amplifying a bit because sometimes, you know, in, in the wound healing process, right? When we get a wound, it goes through this inflammation as the first step of healing. So it feels almost as if there was kind of this, this inflammation of kind of this anxiety and things coming up again to help me really see what was going on and that I needed to make a big, big shift and, you know, stop defining myself by all the external things that I was doing and find ways to stop putting so much stress on my being. Now, here's an interesting metaphor that I'm finding in my journal. So I talked about how I climbed a bunch for like the second half of my time that I was in New Zealand and it really became kind of like the peak of my climbing career. But the whole first part of my time in New Zealand, I wasn't climbing. I, I don't think I really did it very much, maybe a couple times, but I wasn't really going out and trying to climb. And so I write about feeling, you know, really nervous about climbing again, especially leading. So if you aren't familiar, part of climbing is, you know, when you're, you can, you can set up a rope at the top. If that's something that you have access to, if you can walk to the top of a route and you can build an anchor and set up a rope. So you always have a rope on you, but typically in climbing, somebody is going to lead, which means they have the rope clipped to their harness. And as they climb up the wall, they're clipping the rope in as they go. So they're clipping it into quick draws on bolts, but there's going to be times where, you know, you're at a bolt and you're making your moves until you get to the next bolt where you can clip the rope in. And if you fall in that time between, you know, clipping bolts, you can have a bit of a fall. And it depends. Sometimes it can be a really big fall if it's kind of sketchy. Sometimes it's not so big, but it's it's a scary aspect of climbing. And so this was kind of always part of my climbing when I would have these long breaks from climbing. I get really nervous about climbing again. And it wasn't actually about climbing. It was all about leading and mostly about falling on lead. And it was just this huge fear that I had. And it took a really big mental shift to get back into this headspace after a break, which is very natural. But it always felt like for me, it took this huge effort to shift back and I was often flooded with fear before starting again. Now, I write about like seeing this as a learning opportunity and detaching from achievement. Understanding that falling is a part of climbing. I cannot improve without embracing falls, right? And that is a metaphor for life. <laughs> falls are a part of healing, improving, growing, evolving, right? And without those falls, you don't improve and expand to the level you want. Because in climbing, right, if you're afraid of falling, you're going to stay within a grade that you know you can climb. You're not going to expand and evolve into the next grade and keep pushing yourself because that means you might fall. Now, in, in general, a lot of the kind of sport climbing I was doing, falls 
are quite low consequences given that, you know, there's not, you know, a run out, like a big space between bolts or that there's like some sort of ledge or obstacle that you might hit. And so that's something that you can just assess before you begin. And you can decipher what is more safe and what isn't as safe and when to push it. And it's all about kind of trusting yourself to create that space to allow a fall to happen. And so I had to just start falling. (laughs) I had to start falling and practicing falling on purpose. And um, I just forced myself to do it. And I just think that that's a very nice metaphor to look upon life and healing with. And so there was the first half of New Zealand and there was the second half. And this second half was filled with climbing and outdoor adventures and really simple living, just being in my van, living out of my van in nature, meeting new wonderful connections along the way, a lot of time to just be with myself and journal and play music. And it was such a shift for me. It was like taking all that had happened in that first part and being able and really privileged and lucky since I didn't have to work and I had a van to live in, you know, to just really truly be able to be a little bit more with myself and find a different pace and simplicity of life. And it was absolutely, absolutely nourishing to me. Although, you know, still was pushing it a bit with the mountains and the climbing and stuff, but um, it was a really beautiful time. And from there, I said goodbye to the South Island um, and my Kiwi parents and everyone I had connected with. And I made my way up to the North Island and I was heading off to go to a Vipassana. So Vipassana is a 10-day silent meditation retreat, although I wouldn't really call it a retreat because in my mind, a retreat is like, ah, kind of nice and luxurious. This was just like an experience. Now, here's the funny thing, right? Because I had met people when I was traveling in Asia who had done a Vipassana. So it was something I had heard about a lot. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I could ever do that 10 days in silence. Like, oh, But it always intrigued me. It felt like this challenge I wanted to take on at some point in my life. And during, you know, this time in New Zealand, I started to really think about how meditation might be really helpful for me, especially with such an active brain like I have. And I thought, well, what better way (laughs) to get into meditation than to just jump right into a 10-day Vipassana retreat? I don't know if that's the best way of operating, um, but it was also about to be my birthday and I just thought, this is this is what I'm gonna do. So I made my way up the North Island, enjoying some adventures along the way and up into the more tropical part where I would be at this retreat center for 10 days. <sighs> Let me tell you, that first day was the longest day of my life. I had so much pain and aches like in my knees and my back. My mind couldn't focus on my breath for more than two seconds. I had a headache that first evening. I don't know if it was because of a lack of food or just meditating all day. Um, I got really intense stomach pain at lunch and couldn't eat. I felt like really sweaty and dizzy and nauseous. I really don't know what happened there. Um, 
I just, that first day was a struggle on so many levels. And the thing about this is that, you know, you're meditating like pretty much all day. You wake up kind of before the sunrise and you're supposed to go to the meditation hall and there's like kind of a group meditation and it was either an hour or an hour and a half that you're sitting there as a group. And then you have the choice to either stay in the meditation hall or go to your room to meditate. And you can't have anything with you, right? There's no books or a phone or writing materials or anything like that. It's just you. And then there were times we could have a break to walk around outside. And there was just kind of this little trail through a bit of the forest there. Um... And then there was the times we were eating and we were served breakfast and we were served lunch, but no dinner. We got like tea and fruit, which at that time for me was really stressful because I was used to like eating a certain amount of food, being a very active person and coming from like disordered eating. I was also eating a very different diet because it was all vegetarian, very grain heavy. And I was not used to eating those stuff. I was actually kind of grain-free at the time from my gut. So that was just kind of a stressor, right? And having to sit in a meditation pose all day caused so much pain in my knees and my back. Like it actually would like, there was a couple nights where it was going up and down my legs and back so bad I could hardly sleep. It was absolutely horrible. So that first day I was like, oh my God, how am I going to make it through the next nine days? This is the longest day of my life. This is horrible. And I was just with my thoughts. And honestly, it wasn't hard to not talk to anybody. And you also couldn't like really make eye contact with anybody, which was weird. It was just like having to be with my thoughts that long was extremely challenging and coming out of my usual like coping mechanisms of like exercise and you know my my, like stresses around food it all just kind of added things to it but I knew you know like okay being able to slow down and just be here this is going to be an overall beneficial thing to me so I remember the second day was still the longest day in the world. I couldn't focus for even like 15 minutes on my breath. My mind would then have like a hissy fit. I would think about all these other things in my world, right? I would look forward to the meals. It was like the most exciting part of the day. Um, And... I started to really just long for comfort. I was missing family and friends. And it was interesting to see how the days felt so long while I was just like being present. I didn't have distractions. I was disconnected from the outside world. Everything was really simple. And I felt like that really said a lot. So I was just working with trying to like be with my mind (laughs) and like continue to bring it back into focusing being in more of like a restful parasympathetic time um but it was miserable (laughs) it was absolutely miserable 
the pain was there by day three there was some highlights you know it felt like it moved a little bit faster I was actually able to sit in one position for an entire meditation and actually achieve more of a sensation of lightness and stillness that was blissful my mind got a little bit more quiet so that that hour of meditation went by sort of quickly and it was just kind of like on and off like the evenings were kind of nice because there would always be a bit of a video shown of the teacher of this practice and so that was some entertainment but it was just like pretty much torturous pretty much torturous and so the, the point of vipassana is that really you just start by focusing on the breath going in and out of your nose and trying to feel the actual breath like touching your nostrils and bring your attention to that and then you start to kind of do a body scan and you're noticing the sensations of your body and you are noticing when there is you know painful parts of the body the idea is that they don't stay there forever you know they will pass so you don't like try to avoid them right you just kind of be with the painful part of your body or the uncomfortable part of your body and it will pass and it's the same within like the pleasant blissful states because you know if you practice this enough you can get to this state where there's just this like overall like tingling blissful feeling like going through your entire body but the idea is that you don't cling to that because that too will pass and you'll likely go back to an uncomfortable space in your body as well I experienced a lot of discomfort, a lot of my mind just going, 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 thinking about things. I do remember one point there was a, a, a moment where my mind felt blank and it was just like this empty room with this like blank book and this little character like just turning the page and it was blank. And that was pretty amazing for me. But overall, like as time went on, you know, my mind got a bit you know, a little bit quieter. My body adjusted a bit more. The days started to go faster. I was able to hold a position without moving because the idea is you're trying to hold a position without moving for like the whole meditation if you can, just to like be able to go through all the different pains and sensations. I was still having like some stomach aches. Whew, it was rough, but I will say by the end of it, by the last day I was able to experience that sensation where just like the tingly blissful feeling going through my entire body and that was a really special thing to experience we wrapped it up I, I think back to it now I'm like I can't believe I did that for 10 days it's really not my thing I'm glad I did it but it, it's just not a method for me and I don't plan to to go back and do it um but I well I'll share too that vipassana means seeing things as they really are so it's the process of self-purification by observing oneself you begin by observing and focusing your attention on the natural breath that sharpens your awareness and with that sharpened awareness you observe the changing nature of body and mind 
and you go through this experience of impermanence, right? Of suffering, of egolessness. And your body is showing you this inside as an example. And the idea is that you can eliminate the three causes of all unhappiness, craving, aversion, and ignorance. And, you know, everything in nature is an impermanent. Everything has suffering. Um, and it's an ongoing practice to separate from the ego. And the idea that is if you know this and you can experience this, you can start to release the three causes of unhappiness and suffering. So that's kind of the basic idea behind it. Um, you're not trying to, you know, cling to craving, right, of the positive sensations. And you're not trying to, you know, have aversion to what's uncomfortable. You're just trying to find acceptance of what is or isn't. And the idea is that you can release tensions developed in everyday life and developed by habitual thought patterns by clinging to craving and aversion and open the knots tied by the old habit of reacting in an unbalanced way to pleasant and unpleasant situations, which overall there's a really beautiful message in there. And when we do somatic experiencing, we're also tracking the sensations right in our body. And naturally the body will pendulate between more positive, pleasant sensations and more negative, uncomfortable sensations. So Vipassana, in, in a way, is bringing somatic awareness to that pendulation that naturally happens. But I don't think everything, I don't think it needs to be in such a strict, intense way because it can still override certain aspects of our body that we need to honor. So again, not for me, but I did have some amazing breakthroughs by the end of it, and it was quite a challenge to go through. And by the time we could all talk to each other, we kind of had the very last day. Um, it was the most insane energy in my body. I just like felt like, whoa, like all this crazy energy coming through as I began to talk to the people I had been sitting with for 10 days and it felt like you were like high and floating on a cloud and you wanted to like talk so much at once yet not at all it was really really hard to describe um but was pretty pretty incredible and so that was vipassana i moved out of that space and i had just a maybe a month left in new zealand went and went up a volcano for my birthday and just spent time um, driving around in the van, soaking up the rest of what the North Island had to offer, and going to um, a Maori festival in Auckland, and then sadly having to sell my van, which was a very, very hard thing, and leaving New Zealand was extremely, extremely hard for me and very, very emotional. But by the time I left New Zealand, I had found such a, a different way to relate to my my mind and my anxiety, to my gut health. Um, I had found ways to slow down and simplify. And I got the, the knowing that I wanted to go forward and do my nutritional therapy practitioner training. So that became really clear for me. I sold the van. I flew away from New Zealand. I headed back to Melbourne, Australia for two weeks to see the partner and his family. In that time, we ended our relationship. Um, 
as we were moving forward into the next things and that was also very challenging and then I went to Thailand for a couple weeks just to have some solo time back in Thailand I wanted to do my dive certification and got my open water advanced open water cert got a lot of massages did some mountain bike uh, no motorbike rides around and really enjoyed that time before I transitioned back home and there is so so much more that transpired of course but it would take me a long time to read through all these journals and a lot of this stuff doesn't necessarily need to be shared here but this set me up into uh, my 27th year being 27 and from here i would do some travels to europe over the summer um reconnecting with a climbing friend from new zealand a friend from germany doing some nanny work in greece sleeping in rental cars in spain going climbing in chamonix connecting with a friend from home going to a funky little rave at a castle in france and just like having this really beautiful couple months um connecting with friends from home and friends from my time in New Zealand that I met and just traveling around. Um, I had um, a short relationship with somebody in Germany and uh, learned a lot through that process. And then that ended and that set me off to um, return home for a couple months before then I started my trip down to Costa Rica and South America, which is going to be the next um, share. And it might all be in one episode or it might be broken up into two. I'm not going to share necessarily more from Thailand or Europe just because I feel like so much of it was just very interpersonal as like New Zealand was. Um, but this time, especially down in South America, was extremely, extremely potent for me and my healing and I am so excited to get into that episode with you all. So thank you so much for listening to just my journey and my experiences through this time of travel. Um, I got to return to New Zealand this summer in 2023 uh, for the first time since I was there and be welcomed back into my Kiwi parents home Um, and it was absolutely amazing. I also returned to Australia going to visit my ex and his family in australia in melbourne but spending some time diving in the great barrier reef and doing some work up in port douglas and it was just really truly the most heartwarming trip to return to these places that have felt like home all right that's all for now and uh, thank you so much for tuning in i hope you have a regulated and resilient day before you go i just wanted to say thank you so much for tuning in If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, leave a rating or review, and share it. That helps it reach others who will benefit from this information. So much gratitude for you. Have a beautiful day.